0: You're listening to the Team Guru Podcast, bringing to life the theory and principles of leadership.
1: Hello and welcome to the Team Guru Podcast. I'm David Frizzell and this is Episode 70, a special episode that's all about thinking and leadership. It's been a remarkable journey to get to Episode 70. When I first started the podcast two and a half years ago, I wanted it to be a place where I could take the theory of leadership development and bring it to life. I've been lucky to talk with some of the world's best authors, CEOs and leaders. And now that we've entered the Christmas season, I thought it would be a great opportunity to look back at some of the lessons we've learned over the last few years. During the 1980s, corporate titans popularized the idea that leadership was a matter of willpower. These leaders dominated their workforce and instilled a palpable sense of fear through their organisations. There are plenty of companies that still operate like that, but a more progressive style of leadership has been taking shape over the last 20 years. These companies try to inspire rather than terrify their employees. Science has played a huge role in bringing about this change. Breakthroughs in brain science have allowed us to better understand human behavior. In episode 61, Dr. Jenny Brockus joined us to reveal some of those secrets. Dr. Jenny is the author of the book, Future Brain, 12 Keys to Create Your High Performance Brain. In our conversation, she talked about neuroplasticity, that's the idea that the brain is not static. It can always keep renewing itself to learn new things. I started our conversation by asking Jenny about the best ways to keep our brain healthy.
0: Brain health really is, as it sounds, it's the health of our brain itself. And it's different from mental health, which a lot of people sort of get sort of confused by. They say, oh, Jenny, you're all about sort of anxiety, depression, are you? And I say, well... No, that actually falls under the umbrella of brain or cognitive health, but it's not that on its own. And it's different too from physical health, which obviously is about our body in general. Brain health or cognitive health is basically how well we think, learn, and remember. And it's something that is actually quite important to us in our our (laughs) daily
1: lives. It sure is.
0: And yet we pay so little attention to our brains because... I think no up until recently we haven't had the information available to us to understand what's actually going on inside our skulls and secondly the sort of the impact that sort of making sure that our brain is as fit and healthy as possible I know that what's possible to you know we cannot skill our thinking we can improve our effectiveness when it comes to learning information and retaining it and then being able to recall it at the right time all these things can actually sort of make a big difference to how well we perform or you know, run our lives and, and our work.
1: All right. Well, you answered my second question there as well, Jenny. I was oh, going sorry. to ask you, no, <laughs> please don't apologize. You're thinking well ahead. Ah, pardon the pun. You, <laughs> you talked about the fact that I was going to ask you, if it's so important, why am I just hearing about it? And you answered that by saying that we're really just starting to understand about brain health. So brain health yeah. is about how well we think, learn, and remember, and it's it's a fairly yeah. new topic because we're just starting to understand what have, what have been the big breakthroughs in the last I don't know generation I guess generation of science that's helped us understand this topic a lot more.
0: Well, the the amount of information that's that we've discovered is is just fantastic. But I think the single most important concept to come out of all the neuroscience is the understanding that we have this massively what we call plastic brain. Neuroplasticity has literally turned our thinking about the brain upside down because when I was at medical school, I was taught the brain was hardwired, incapable of change, and that we were born with a certain number of brain cells. And that once we reached maturity, we were all on the slippery road to decline, right. which sounded very horrible. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Fortunately, that was completely wrong. So neuroplasticity implies that our brain can change or rewire itself in response to changes in our environment which means that we are lifelong learners. We're never too old to learn. We can always upskill those areas that we recognize we've become a little bit rusty in, and it, we have this plasticity available to us across our entire lifespan, although the caveat is it does start to drop off a little bit once we reach the age of 80 plus. Oh,
1: that's I can't believe you said 80. <laughs> I thought you were going to say they're 17, 22, 30 at uh, most. So is no, no, no. it is it a myth that we're not as good at learning as we get older? Because my wife and I just drool over our son, he's four, his ability to remember stuff, mm-hmm. learn new things. You know, he he doubles his knowledge every few months, and, and I certainly yes. am not doing that. Is that just because he knows so little? So it's really impressive when when he proves new information and I'm not learning as quickly because I'm so much older and, and my head is full of junk? <laughs> or do we literally stop the ability to learn quickly, or at least decrease that ability?
0: yeah, it's it, that's a very interesting way you've put it. I mean, it's true that you know a four year old is learning so much because they're curious, they want to understand and make sense of the world, so they're like little sponges mopping up this information rapidly. Now, we reach our cognitive peak at the lofty age of about 24. So we are at our prime in our mid-20s. So what happens is following that, things start to change a little bit. We've still got our plasticity available to us. But as we mature, our speed of processing information starts to slow down a little bit. And it's not until we're probably in our 40s, or beyond, that we start to notice that that actually showing up in our day to day lives. Those tip of the tongue moments, those lapses of memory that buggers all the time, and we think, "Oh my goodness, what's wrong with my brain?" Well, there's nothing wrong with your brain. It's just that you know we do experience some change as we get a bit older.
1: So explain to me then how I've reached my peak, my mental peak at 24, mm. yet my brain mm. still maintains this plasticity that allows me to, mm. to continue to learn. 24, that seems pretty young to be reaching my peak. It I mean, <laughs> I know, say, cricketers and rugby league players reach their mm. peak at about 24, but that's that's, yeah. that's physical. I was hoping yeah. that I was still yet to reach my peak intellectually, but you're telling me I'm on the downhill
0: slide. No, I wouldn't say necessarily on the downhill <laughs> slide. In fact, many people, as they mature, because they develop different interests or hobbies actually find themselves increasing their plasticity and actually improve their brains in that aspect. So it's the the old adage, you know, the more you use it, the better it gets. Because with plasticity, what you're doing is you're driving the brain's neurons, and we've got 87 billion of them or so sitting in our skull, all looking for the opportunity to form connections with each other. And every time we're embedding a thought or a memory or a new habit – we're creating these new, what we call synaptic connections, which then link together to form or create a neural circuit or pathway. And every time we rehearse or practice that particular thought, we strengthen that pathway. And because that's available to us, the more we take in, the more we practice, the better the brain gets.
1: Is that so why
0: we gather, we gather wisdom as we get older? Don't we? We always, we know, we get wise. Jenny, is
1: is that why I I read a lot? My listeners are sick of hearing me talk about how much I read. It's one of my real top hobbies, but I always lament how much of it escapes me. I read it. I find it really enjoyable at the time. It's it's really interesting. And then months later, years later, I can look at a book and think, I really enjoyed reading that, but I can't remember a single thing from it. But I know right. that if I take a concept out of that book and add it to one of my workshops and develop a slide set yes. that's about those yes. concepts and those books, and I talk about yeah. it at a handful of workshops, it is locked in there. And I can still recall it years later. Is that that's what true. you're talking about? I'm creating those neuro, what, how did you neuro describe circuit? it? Neuro Absolutely. circuits. And because yep. I'm revisiting that information, then I'm just strengthening mm. that pathway and it becomes permanent.
0: That's right. So the more we practice it, the more we rehearse it, the stronger that particular circuit comes. And it's, it's like the stuff we learned at school. I mean, most of the stuff we learned at school, we can't remember any of it because mm. we're not using it. Yeah. But occasionally, you know, you might sort of be in a conversation with somebody and they'll say, oh, what's the French word for toast or, or bread or something? And somewhere in those dark it. recesses, mm. that word will suddenly come up to front of mind. And you think, oh, I didn't know I remembered that. So, our brain is really quite clever in that it stores a significant amount of information, which the stuff we access most often is more readily accessible to us. But some of the other stuff, we sort of, you know, we, it gets lost in the crowd, so to speak. What you're saying um,
1: there, it kind of makes me think back to the old rote learning that seemed to get yeah. such a bad rap in education. You're making me think maybe it wasn't that bad an idea and, and teachers in yesteryear were clearly playing on that reality that the more yeah. you connected those neuropaths, the stronger they were and the longer they'd last.
0: Well, you, you probably like the majority of us. I mean, we still can recite our times table because that was what we, one of the things we did learn mm. by rote learning. But I, I don't actually think rote learning is the best way to learn because the science would tell us that it's, it's the associations or the links we make between different ideas that actually are better for us rather than just repeating things over and over and over but it's very true that there are certain items which you know especially you know periodical table and things like that <laughs> you know I, I really struggled with that at school and I had to learn it by rote because I found it really difficult to learn it any other way
1: and when you think about our learning structures even just say think back to university I'm not sure about you, but most degrees that I've known about, known of have that lecture kind of structure and then a tutorial. Yeah. They're kind of set up that way yes. to make the most of, of those thinking highways. You mm. are exposed to a concept in the lecture, and of course, you will mm. not remember it if you don't get a chance to ch- talk about it, chat with some colleagues, yes. debate ideas, yes. throw around ideas and then it's more likely to stick. And that's why we have the tutorials for a couple of hours after we have the lecture. I guess we've almost always understood that, haven't we?
0: That's right. But what we also now understand is that it's the information we discover for ourselves that actually sticks even better. So rather than being lectured to or taught, if we're told to go away and look up a a particular topic and find out as much as we can by ourselves – and then have the class to discuss certain aspects of it. That. that really helps us to embed the learning more effectively.
1: The science of the brain is only part of the reason companies have become much more open and collaborative than a generation ago. Psychology has also played an important role. I remember being blown away when I first read Daniel Goleman's landmark 1995 book, emotional intelligence, it's since become one of my favorite things to talk about. It's something I spend more time thinking about than just about any other concept. In episode 59, I spoke with Muffy Churches, who shares my passion in this topic. She works as an executive coach, but she likes to think of herself as a thought therapist. In this episode, Muffy and I discussed our belief that emotional intelligence is as important for leaders as athleticism is for sportsmen. Unlike IQ, which can't be changed through one's lifetime, emotional intelligence or EQ can be improved. And we discussed how to do just that.
2: I define it as our ability to do a couple of things. So first of all, our ability to be able to sort of Know what we're feeling when we're feeling it. So, really being able to not just to be able to say to ourselves, I feel bad or I feel good, but kind of define and label the sensation, like be sensitive enough to say to ourselves, I'm feeling angry or I'm frustrated or I'm concerned, like having a, a word to connect to it, being able to recognize some of that in others as well. Then there's the next level of it, which is to say, now if i can recognize what i'm feeling where is my brain going to take this how is my thinking related to what i'm feeling and if i continue down this path where will it take me so there's a little bit of that that innate understanding of cause and effect so and this all happens you know in our heads in split seconds so it's sort of like recognizing if i'm angry right now and i react to that in this moment and i give it back what will that do to the interaction i'm in the middle of so being emotionally intelligent is being self aware being aware of the cause and the effect for me of you know where it's going to take me if i allow that particular emotion to run its course but then the most important piece of the package is is then knowing where that emotion and that thinking could take me can i manage it in a way that will help me achieve an effective outcome. So instead of inflaming a situation by, you know, slapping back with words, so to speak, can I manage my thinking and my emotions in a way that will help me connect with this person in a peaceful, more solution-focused way? And that's a whole we'll be talking about that I'm sure that's a, that's a whole sort of package of practice it takes to to know how to make that That switch happened in our head.
1: I love your description. And you know, the concept that that this idea of emotional intelligence didn't become mainstream or popularized until 1995, can you believe? When Daniel Goleman, of course, wrote his breakthrough, his groundbreaking book about Mm. emotional intelligence. So, Daniel Goleman got the first crack at defining emotional intelligence. And of course, since he did that, and it was so successful and it resonated with so many people, a lot of others have come along behind him and and yeah. put together different packages. But, but I like to stick with the original. My understanding lies very much with Daniel Goldman's categories. And for our listeners, I'm going to outline the way the godfather of emotional intelligence yeah. has yeah. outlined <laughs> it in his five components. So the first two, self-awareness, as you talked about and self-regulation. So that ability for us, self-awareness, to understand the impact our behavior is having on others, to understand the wake we leave as we move through our life. Or another way of thinking about it is that the shadow that we cast. In leadership, we talk about the leadership shadow. People who have high levels of self-awareness, they get the impact their behaviour is having on on those around them. So that's really really interesting, yeah. and and even that we can get stuck on that first component because having self awareness is a really tricky thing. How are you, yeah. how can you be sure that you have self awareness? You know, a lot <laughs> of us go around thinking we're we're doing a pretty good job at forming relationships, but we could just be interacting with a whole bunch of really polite people who don't tell us what a jerk we are. That's right. Having yeah, having self-awareness is a really tough thing. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hit you up really soon, Muffy, and ask you about how we develop and ascertain our own self-awareness. But before I do that, I want to talk about the second of Daniel Goldman's components, his five components of emotional intelligence. That's self-regulation. So self-awareness is cool, and we're going to talk about where we get that from soon and how, how aware we are of ourselves and what we can do to improve that. But it's one thing to know that I respond this way in these situations, or I'm feeling angry right now, or I'm thinking unreasonable things, or whatever it is, or I'm really excited and I'm likely to annoy people right now. All of that is great, to have self-awareness. But if you don't also have hand-in-hand self-regulation, then that self-awareness isn't all that useful because you can tell yourself all you like that I'm angry, I'm going to do something unreasonable, or I'm being judgmental, or I'm being overly excited. If you can't regulate that and control that behavior, then it's not worth that much. So That's how those two components of Daniel Goleman's model work really well, self-awareness and self-regulation. Hey, Muffy, before we move on to the, the third, fourth, and fifth, can you talk to me about self-awareness? How can I be sure that I'm as self-aware as I think I am?
2: <laughs> it's a tough one, isn't it? I think sometimes we, we have to rely on, well, there are two answers to this. On one hand, we need to rely on the feedback that we get from people around us and, and try to pick up on what they're saying in their facial expressions and yeah. the tone they're using. Yeah. You know, I mean, that others will help us. But as you're saying, they don't always, mm. you know, they, they keep it to themselves. They don't want to rock the boat. So I think what quite often happens to us is it's kind of like we burn our finger on the stove when it's hot. So we become self-aware sometimes out of necessity, almost a self-protective kind of an exercise. So knowing that something didn't work out well for us because of our reaction yesterday, we're less likely to have the same reaction to a similar situation in the future. Mm. So we, out of self-protection, start, start to become a little bit self-aware. I mean, I know this is, this is a bit of a far cry and we haven't talked about nature and nurture yet, but I think about myself when I was a kid, I had a beautiful dad who had been through world war II and he had some rage, you know, he had some of the, um, uh, what do we call it now? The um,
1: post-traumatic stress disorder.
2: Yeah. He had that, but it wasn't sort of, it wasn't, diagnosed with. Back in mm. those days, they didn't quite know what it was. And so I learned as I was growing up, I learned to be very self-aware in terms of what I was saying and how I was saying it because I had to walk on eggshells.
1: I was about to, I say, I was about to say the eggs. So that's yeah. actually good for you yeah. as a child, is it?
2: Uh, well, it worked in my favor in the sense that I've built a, an entire profession around it. <laughs> so I'm yeah. very grateful to dad yeah. because- it forced me to become self-aware enough to be so careful not to say or do the wrong thing. So it made me watch my own behavior, watch my own responses so carefully. I think, in a sense, you know if we go back to the the gymnasium and the athleticism example, I was at an early date starting to flex my emotional intelligence muscles because I needed to in order to be comfortable. So I think in some ways, for whatever life context we all we all have, whatever our, personal stories are. It doesn't matter if things happen as an adult or as a kid, but we we do start to learn and connect that certain responses get connected responses yeah. from others. Yeah. And some of them feel good and some of them don't. Most of us like to feel good as often as possible. So yeah, we're very careful. And I think that's one of the places that self-awareness starts. I know, I know one of the beauties of being a coach, for example, is that Awesome privilege to be able to sit with someone who might be very high on the totem pole, someone who's obviously done so well that they're in an executive position and yet they've finally tripped across the notion that they are lacking in some of that self-awareness and that they need somehow some help to work out what have I been doing wrong, you know, and how how can I stop this? So, helping them start to watch the tip David, and I'm sure this is something that you work through as well, is that to use that term for our listeners, to use the term inner voice, Mm. there's that alternate self that we need to start to listen to when we become self-aware. So there's that voice in our head that is saying things to us all the time if we're willing to listen to it. Sometimes it's good and sometimes it's not. I kind of call mine the evil twin because... You know, she'll pop up sometimes and she'll, she'll say things to me that are self-limiting. You know, some of those negative, insecure things that most of us tend to say to ourselves sometimes. So that's the self-awareness is around getting used to listening to that voice, but making a strategic decision as to whether we like what we hear and we think it's working for us, or if we finally worked out that, no, we need to change it and shift it around to something that's more constructive and works for us and for others.
1: So interesting that you talk about your high level of self-awareness coming from a parent who was difficult, mental health issues, (laughs) whose behavior was up and down. You were so aware of not being the trigger that you developed this really high level of self-awareness. Wow. Okay. That's a great story. And I bet there are some listeners right now who are relating to that. We talk about feedback being a gift, and it's just so true, isn't it? Most of us want to know if our behavior is having an impact that we don't want it to have, but so rarely do we really give that hard kind of feedback to people when before we started recording, you and I were talking muffy about the work that I'm doing at the moment. I'm, I've got a great yeah. client doing lots of great work, and I don't know whether the work I'm doing great, but I really enjoy the project, and I'm working on this with this team, and quite early in the piece. I said something in a meeting, which was actually quite big news for an individual in the meeting, that they they were being mm. moved from one team to another, and I was kind of flippant about it because I oh. thought I knew this guy and I thought I oh, he'll be fine with that, and I just brushed yeah. over it, moved along, and he pulled me aside later and told me that that was actually really hard news for him to hear, and and that he didn't like the way I delivered it. And I tell you what, oh. I've never appreciated something so much. And I've never, you know, I can't remember the last time I was checked so badly. I thought that I was pretty good at tuning into what's going on around me. I can't remember the last time I got it so wrong. Well, actually, maybe I get it wrong all the time, but people aren't usually confident enough or generous enough to come and tell me, I really appreciated what that guy said. And it just caused me to check my antenna a bit more because I maybe was a bit overconfident and didn't think and thought I was doing fine and not reading the signs of the people around me. It was a really great gift. And we talk about feedback being a gift. It's really difficult to give, but my goodness, if we don't give it to each other, where are we going to get it from?
2: Well, that's right. And I have a story too, David, to add to yours because I too, even though I you know having said I grew up very, you know, being very sensitive, it certainly doesn't mean I have it right either all the time and I I remember and we it was a wonderful thing. I saw it like you did. It was a great gift. When I worked for a global training company for about 12 years here in Sydney, in Australia, and I remember one a member of one of the other teams came up to me one day, and he'd been going through a lot of personal development himself. He was, I think he was going to, it's called Landmark or something, and he'd been learning an awful lot about himself and others and reactions, and he came up with the best intentions and gave me some really rough feedback, which was really helpful to me. Same as you, it was such a gift. He said to me, you know, Muffy, he said, I know you, you know, you work really hard. You're good at what you do. I think people like you here, but I think they could like you more if you changed your behavior. And I said, wow. tell me, Oh my goodness. Yeah. you know, what? Yeah. Tell, tell me, what am I doing? Yeah. It's hard and it's awesome at the same time to hear it. Yeah. He said, Well, you're always in such a rush he said you're you race into the kitchen you grab whatever you have to get and you leave again and you or you're at the elevator and you run across and you he said you're not stopping mm. to engage with mm. people and we just wish you know just if you just would stop and say hello and yeah. ask a question about their personal life. Yeah. So that for me was huge.
1: Oh, yeah. I loved it. I yeah. was so grateful. And, yeah. and as you say, it's hard to hear, isn't it? And yeah, it's it no hard. wonder. Yeah. And you know what? I'm not very good at doing it myself, Muffy. When I know someone and I watch them work and I know about patterns, yes. it's really hard for me to point out and say, Hey, look, I know your intentions are really good, but oh. this behavior that we see regularly is having this impact on people, I don't do it. And if I'm not doing yeah. it, who you know, who <gasps> is?
2: Yeah, I know it. It's really tough. Mm-hmm. You know what started to make it a little bit easier for me to mm-hmm. do? I had a, the opportunity to run a program from a big manufacturing company on giving and receiving feedback. Yeah. So the best thing that happens to us, David, as trainers is that we have the opportunity. We learn what we train, right? Yeah. I mean, it's like, it's a win-win sort of a gift. So sure I really is. researched it carefully. But I so I learned some of the really basic things that I hadn't known before, such as the conflict resolution approach, where you you speak about your own feelings as you're giving somebody else feedback. So you're not pointing the finger and you're not saying you should, you didn't, you sh- you know, you don't, you're kind of saying when you do something, the it way makes I, me, yeah, I, I feel, feel, yeah, yeah I yeah. feel. And I think what I would prefer would be, and how do you feel about mm. that? You know, What are your thoughts? Yeah. So just finding a process, mm. you know, it just helps us hang our hat on something that's safe, gives us something to practice and, the more I tried to do it in class as, you know, giving examples, the easier it became for me to do, I think, on a, on a daily basis.
1: A big part of emotional intelligence is intuition. It forms a vital part of how we make decisions in life yet Many of us don't know how to use it properly. In episode 64, Craig Wilson told me that he's devoted much of his life to helping people understand what intuition is and how it can benefit our lives. Craig is a mentor and speaker and the author of the best-selling book, Intuitive, how to access and use your birth given intuition. Craig says our inner voice can guide you to a happier life. All you have to do is listen. You have to start by asking yourself honestly about the state of your career, your health, and your relationships. I asked, Craig, if intuitive leaders are able to make better split-second decisions.
3: Yeah, absolutely, but I would say more than a split-second. It's almost like you have infinitely more time because that split-second on the field is like having 100 times more advantage than in the other players, and you're still going Mm. for what you want. So, you know, I've been a rugby boy myself, so you're seeing the way forward where others aren't. Or the fear comes up and you're able to dissolve it quickly. So it's both. So it's not like they're just some, some freak or whatever. I mean, there are those moments of brilliance, you know, where they don't think and it's just happening. But there's also those moments of, oh my God, a six foot five guy is going to trample on my head. And then somehow they fly, you know, they get that fly pass away. So it's what choice do I make? Where am I going to focus? So it just depends how you flip it. There's many ways to look at it, you know. Someone is more of a you know, faith based, open, spiritual person will just see it as this flowing stream of consciousness. Someone like yourself is like, oh, well, yeah, it makes sense. It's practical. If my mind is clear and my heart's clearer, then, um, or my mind's, you know, has got more space and I'm not thinking, you know, half as much or, and certainly not as negative, I'm going to feel better about myself and have greater confidence, going to have more energy and going to get better results. So it's really a personal experience and it's where you're at in the journey. And that's why the book's got the 38 chapters in it. You can pick up any chapter at any stage. You've got all the key points at the back, you know, and it's wherever you want to start. You know, you can use your intuition really to make better decisions and to get you from where you are right now to where you want to be from a practical point of view. And then there's others that make it a, a way of life, you know, like even 20, 30, say 30 years ago, we didn't have mobile phones and things like that, you know, pretty much. And we did trust our intuition more, our instincts more. You know, we we're more connected with people. So we didn't second guess ourselves as much. So now we've got all these ideas of who and what we should be, which tend to be manufactured. So I'm trying to bring a little bit of old school back. You know, I've used these labels of intuition. But these are things that people, have, I think, have had ever since we were born, you know, for you know, many millennia. And it's just a matter of, you know, some common sense if we're not as negative and we're trusting our emotions more and having more confidence, then it's a very attractive quality in life and, and certainly in business.
1: Craig, I've got to ask you this. I, I'm pretty sure I know what the answer is going to be, but is there a danger, if used incorrectly or if used for a shortcut, that people could convince themselves that they're being intuitive when they're in fact ignoring hard evidence, when they're nor ignoring hard facts about themselves and their life? Do people ever use you know for all the wonderful things you've described about getting in touch with your intuition? Do people ever use it as an excuse to ignore things that are staring them in the face?
3: The small answer to that is yes, but they're not using their intuition because if you're in ego, that's not being intu- in, using your intuition. If you're in fear, that's not intuition. If it's some fleeting feeling or based on anxiety, or you know you have an out, you know you you're using it for selfish purposes. That's not intuition, is it? Because you're defying. Logic, you know, so it's a matter of assessing all those things. So the answer is that, and I talk about it, you know, in one of the chapters, uh, chapter eight, page 63, intuitive ethics and responsibilities, it's calling you to a higher level of responsibility that you have ethics. So hmm. it's really coming, you know, intuition really is a way of acts, clearing your mind of negativity and your heart from fear so that you can come from a more loving place in your life. And when you're more in flow, I believe there's a there's scientific level you know, of love that when you're in that flow state, so you're feeling good, you're at more calm, then you, you're going to get better information on all those levels, levels right down to you, to your cells, right? So yes, absolutely. And that's one of the reasons I'm here with the book. It's interesting because since I've brought out the book, the conversation about intuition, certainly in Australia, is getting broader and I'm seeing it on social media. And people are trying to, some are, and it's great, but are tagging it in other realms, and it's not intuition, you know. So, you know, using other forms of uh, what I'm basically saying is that, yes, you know, if you're coming from a place of tomfoolery or being an idiot and saying, oh, I'm trusting my intuition, and I've had it with clients that, with one particular client where their partner had, had only done a little bit of work in consciousness and he'd done years of it. And she's saying, Oh, my intuition's telling this, saying this. I'm saying, Well, hang on, you, you're comparing this to a guy who's done probably three or 400 hours work and you've done five hours' work. Mm. So that's not intuition. So it takes a lot of practice to clear your mind and your heart and you get better at it. So the That's winning is, a battle. Yeah, yeah. So it's really about, you know, where am I coming from right now? And this is actually a great one. Am I coming from a place of love or am I coming from a place of fear? So if you're coming from a place of fear and, you know, like in business, look at it. There's two deals, and I've done this with boards. So there's deal A and there's deal B, or even as a small business or an entrepreneur, and I'll say, tell me about deal A. And I'll say, oh, deal A is great. Okay, why is deal A great? I'll say, well, deal A is great because we're going to make all this money and we're going to make all this money in 14 months. So that's fantastic. I'll say, tell me about what's in it for the customer. I'll say, well, what do you mean? i said, say, well, tell me about what the customer gets out of it. Oh, yeah, it's pretty good for the customer, but um, we make a lot of money out of it. I'll say, okay, well, let's leave that deal over there. So you can see the common sense of, of intuition. Then I said, tell me about deal B. Deal B, the customers love it. It's amazing. Very, very popular, Yeah, you etc., know, et cetera, et cetera. And I say, what's the downside of Deal B? Oh, well, it's going to take us two years to make the money, you know, two and a half years. And then you can just stand back, you know, before having your answer and say, well, which one do you think the market or which one do you think life or the universe, whatever you want to believe, is going to support? And the answer is Deal B. So mm. it comes down to a lot of, you know, are you willing to stick by your core values? Are you willing to be patient? If people are just in it for the money, then that's fine. I suppose... I'm talking, and um, the work I'm working with. Uh, my aim is to work with that tribe of people who want to make a difference, that want to he- live by a higher standard, and want to be conscious um, people and business owners and athletes and things like that to share that you know that the world is bigger together. That there's enough out there. So I'm coming from a place of plenty rather than a place of lack. So mm. it's Abundance. really. Uh, yeah, abundance, taking, but in real, real terms. So it's not about competition. I'm not really interested in competition. I don't really have a competitor, but it's taken many years to educate and, and now to explain how my work's different and how you can get a, you know, a, a particular result. So I'm, you know, wherever people are, that's where they should be. If people are in a mental state, then great. Stay there. If people are emotional, but can't be logical, well, that's something to consider as well. And if you're all spaced out like a hippie and you're enjoying it, great. Enjoy that. You know, I've ex- experienced, you know, I've done transcendental meditation and a lot of advanced training and experienced different realms. I've been the high-end corporate guy and I've been just meditated for years and got that as an experience as a mark as well. But for me, it's about living in the middle. And people like yourself, for me, we're one all, all side of the middle or the other is that most people out there are in the middle. And mm. so that's where I am is about giving the everyday person or the person with some ambition and some some values and some goals and some principles a way to move forward. This is where I am in my life right now. I'm not exactly where I thought I'd be or I've hit my financial goals, but I just don't feel I've got the joy of it. So I'm teaching you how you can appreciate everything from being quiet or sitting in the park or, you know, seeing the goodness in things, seeing problems as opportunities. And you know, that all sounds, you know, nice. But when you slow down and you're not being as negative and you're breathing all this stuff in and you're living it as a way of being, or as you're saying, you know, on the football field and you feel like you have got that extra half a second, it's a pretty cool way to live.
1: Companies are increasingly building their organizations around the modern lessons of brain science, emotional intelligence, and intuition. Those principles demonstrably produce happier, healthier, more productive workers. Old methods like Jack Welch's famous rank and yank policy, where he routinely fired the bottom 10% of his workforce, just don't work anymore. It may temporarily increase your quarterly earnings, but it ultimately poisons a workforce with fear and suspicion. Real leadership comes from treating your team with respect and understanding. I hope you enjoyed this special episode of the Team Guru podcast. Remember to rank and comment this episode on Apple Podcasts or SoundCloud. And we'll continue this conversation on our Facebook page. That's facebook.com slash teams.guru. I hope you're enjoying your Christmas break. Thanks for listening. We'll be back soon with another compilation episode of the Team Guru podcast. Bye for now.